these things are things like spend hundreds of hours and six months doing vendor evaluations, sending out really pedantic, terrible, terrible RFPs, doing mass amounts of POC or POV or trials or whatever you want to call it, listen to hours of sales presentations. And I think that the reason we do a lot of that kind of thing, and it impacts learning helplessness as well, is we lack confidence. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Brent Dieterding, CISO at AFNI, who was here talking with me today about the infamous trope of CISOs not having a seat at the executive table. Brent's got some fantastic ideas on the topic, and we're here to talk them through, and it's a great conversation. Brent, thanks so much for coming on down to the ranch. Hey, thanks for having me, Alan. I appreciate the opportunity. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. All right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background in cyber and a little bit about your day job? Yeah, sure. I've been doing this for a long time, right? And if you could uh, nail up a VPN in 1999 or 2000, you had the black voodoo magic, right? So I did a lot of stuff way back then because the body of knowledge was so small. It was like being a doctor in the 1700s, right? So I did firewalls and nutrition analysis and all kinds of stuff and made my way up through. Uh, I spent 19 years on the vendor side with a XTR provider now and moved over and became the CISO for Acne. And I, just, I, I love it, but I also have some observations about the role based on kind of the previous 20 years and kind of a new fresh set of eyes on this role. So I think it's uh, kind of unique. I, I like that perspective. That's going to be interesting to hear that journey. It's a journey we don't often hear. So how about a little bit about the day job? So CISO at AFNI, tell us yeah. a little bit about that. Yeah, AFNI is uh, about a 10,000 person organization, BPO, business process, outsourcing, privately held, all that. And so all of those things create a very good environment for, for me to operate in, right? It's uh, kind of an old Bob Dylan song. The country I come from is, is called the Midwest. And I found the culture that I really wanted with AFNI. I found the, the people, the just the culture, the tech stack, the ownership, all of those things came together for AFNI. I report directly to the CEO. We take security very seriously. I have an adequate budget, a great team, and just really enjoy the role. I enjoyed the organization. I enjoyed the role a lot. And it was kind of difficult, honestly, to find that organization. It took a while. I did a whole lot of interviewing. And... Found what I liked and they like me and I like them and it worked out. That's a great approach where you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. And it sounds like you've landed in the sweet spot. And I have to admit, uh, having been a CISO five times and, and having a lot of good friends in the CISO community, all in all total experiences, you are a lucky one. <laughs> well, like I said, I, I interviewed exactly for the place that I could succeed in. And so it's, I'm lucky, yes, but I also kind of interviewed very specifically to, to get the position I'm in. That's awesome. We, we should do a separate show on interviewing businesses as a potential CISO, like your <laughs> interview ta tactics and strategies. That would be a really good show in its own right. One kind of cool thing that happened was this is my first CISO role, right? And so I was just trying to kind of get into the door, but I wanted to be in the organization that had the right culture and all that. I interviewed to be a director under the CIO. I did not ask this, but they came back and said, hey, we want you to report to the CEO. We feel that you're 
an executive. And I was like, that works for me. I, I like that quite a bit. So I kind of got my second CISO job from my first CISO job. Oh, because that's I awesome. get to report directly and it's uh, it's a good thing to have that seat at the table. I think that I would have had that no matter where I reported, but that was kind of a nice, uh, a nice gesture on their part to demonstrate that they consider producers. That's And that's fantastic. And that ties directly into our topic and my very first question here. There's this very common trope in the CISO community. I think I've heard almost every single CISO say it at one point or another. We don't have a real seat at the executive table. We're still sitting at the kid's table. We don't have a room at the grown-up <laughs> table. You know, you hear all the metaphors and analogies. But but the bottom line is the, the CISO community as a whole, I think, still feels for the most part as if they don't have that seat at the table. And you do. What is your take on that trope? You can't think about becoming a CISO without encountering all of those things, right? All the learned helplessness that you talked on an episode before about. And very often what I have found is that the reasons cited have to do with the organization. The culture isn't there. The budget isn't there. Uh, there's a lack of awareness or ignorance, uh, even stupidity. Like, you know, my board doesn't care about security. Right? Yeah, they, they really do. I promise. Reporting structure and all of those very well may be very valid reasons. No doubt about that, right? Those all factor into it. But what I wanted to do is I kind of looked inward at myself a little bit and the role as a whole and said, what do we have to do about it as CISOs? So can we look inwardly and say, is there something about us that means that we don't have a seat at the table? We've not earned that seat at the table. And why might that be? That's really kind of what led me down this, this whole thought path to dig in there saying, well, there's all these organizational things that may be the case, but what do we have to do with it? How can we change that? All right. So there's individual things we can do, but there's also CISOs as a group, I think. We're sort of keeping ourselves from that seat at the table in some regards as a group. What's your take on what we're doing as a group before we dive into those individual aspects? One, I, I think that I should point this out. There's kind of this elephant in the room that no one, being humans, no one really likes being criticized or feeling criticized, even obliquely. <laughs> the analogy I use is that my wife and I are foster parents, and right now we have a one-year-old. And it's like being a baby with a diaper full of poop, right? And they're like, you know, I know I'm sitting in poop, but it's warm and it's mine. And people <laughs> people are like that, right? People people want to hold on to their nastiness or their, their poop, right? So maybe right now, like the natural inclination is for someone to go, I'm not sitting in poop. That's not me. And you're probably correct, right? I'm not talking about you as an individual, your organization, I don't think I'm sitting in poop either. Um, I'm talking about all CISOs kind of collectively, and you're free to consider all of this as other CISOs. That's kind of what I do, and that's fine. So that's the elephant in the room, right? I encourage everyone to go back and listen to the Learned Helplessness episode because that's really what gave me a lot of the words that, that I've received. It boils down to our attitude kind of sucks, right? Mm -hmm. uh, learn helplessness is when we undermine our own success with our attitude. And I've seen this throughout life, right, in a whole lot of different areas. I day traded crude oil for a short period of time, and it happens there. It's limiting beliefs, attitude, and things that you say, all of those boil up. So as an example of those, like you can't think about becoming a citizen and not encounter all of the, all the bad things, right? Some stupid high percentage of CISOs turn to drugs or alcohol for dealing with the stress. And you have the picture of the people in sleeping positions and the CISO isn't there, right? 
you see all of those things. I kind of looked at that and I said, you know what? This feels like when I was about to get married and people would be like, oh yeah, that's nice what you think. Let me know how it works out. Well, 21 years later, like it worked out just how I thought it would. Before it became apparent, it was the same kind of thing. Like you would say something incredibly vague, like I'm not going to beat my kids, right? And someone would be like, oh yeah, you'll see. You'll see. Give it some time. And I'm like, no, had kids for 10 years now and don't beat them. Like that, that's all fine. So I think that a lot of these things that we tell ourselves and tell one another as a group are very, very limiting for us, right? Mm-hmm. And the effect is that I know exactly what that looks like in a couple of years. And so do you, right? So do all yeah. of us, right? Yeah. All of us have encountered that guy who is one of those like, oh God, is it Friday yet? Ugh. And that's not a good way to go through life. And it does not have to be that way, right? At all. And so much of what you had on that Learn Helplessness episode resonated so strongly with me that it was like a light bulb moment. I was like, that's exactly it, right? Our attitude just stinks with so many of those phrases and terms that we tell ourselves. And the effect is terrible. It is indeed. And then that's for folks that haven't caught that episode. Steve Mancini was my guest. The show is called Learn Helplessness in Cybersecurity. Steve basically tore apart all these ideas. And actually, that's one I don't think we covered is the sleeping positions one where the CISO is not in the bed. That's one we should have covered. You know, you have to think about, you know, when we talk about the context of having a seat at the table upstairs, what message does that send to the other executives when the CISO is like, I'm the only one not sleeping? Like, what are you actually saying to the other execs, right? Like, is this a some weird masochistic brag? Is this some insult towards them? I deal with real world responsibilities and you don't. Like, you know, <laughs> a lot of what Steve and I talked about was the self-defeating yeah. aspects of that learned helplessness. But here we're talking specifically about how it impacts that getting that seat at the table and, and maintaining and having that seat at the table. That to me strikes me as one of those ones that it, it's almost a slap in the face to the other executives. Oh, you're tossing attorney. I'm not even sleeping. <laughs> exactly. I don't like martyrdom as a general yeah. statement, right? right? And I feel like a lot of CISOs do exactly that, right? It, it's it's flinging themselves in the martyrdom of, of their industry or their job or their lack of resources or whatever. And it's kind of like, eh, that's a choice, man. You, you don't have to do that. Right. So what else about learned helplessness in terms of being self-defeating, of getting that presence and maintaining that presence at the executive table? What else, what else do we have from learned helplessness that you think you can cite or or quote or think of? So the biggest thing that I find with learned helplessness is that it's not that the phrases are in and of themselves inaccurate or lies or terrible things to say. The issue is much more when we weaponize these things, right? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, you get the, uh, it's not a matter of when, but if, and, and junk like that. And it's like, well, yeah, okay, that's true. Like you should assume that there will be breaches, but let's define breach versus incident and all that kind of stuff, right? When you allow those things to not be data points, but you allow them to be overriding messages, you tell yourself, you tell your executives, you tell your team, and everyone just has this feeling like this is never going to get better. I mean, it's like working at the lost luggage office in the airport. It's hard to have a good day, right? When all you are dealing with are these terrible, horrible things. And I think that there's very much a solution that we just need to stop doing that, right? And that looks like being easier on yourself, doing the best that you can with the resources that you have, and being okay with that, right? I like that. 
So what else can we do then? How do we how do we do it better? You know, attitude clearly is key here per your point, but what else can we be doing to make this better for ourselves? Yeah, and some of this was, was kind of covered before, but I want to I want to hit on a couple things that is having a better attitude, right? So part of it is there are negative aspects, right? You may not have the budget that you want or the resources or the people that you need or, or whatever, um, but you don't need to wallow in that, right? It, it also means being okay, not getting your way. When I bring a project to my executive team, I don't care necessarily whether we do it or do not do it. I care that my opinion was heard and respected. And I care that I articulated it in terms of the business, right? In terms of risk and financial impact and all that. And if we then, as an executive team, decide not to do something, that's okay, right? Having a seat at the table does not get, mean getting your way all the time. It means right. having a seat, right? And I think that that's very important. And to, to that end, we need to be easier on ourselves, um, easier on what on others, especially on LinkedIn, you know, not piling on. I think the phrase you guys used in that episode was vendors are vulture-like and pick through the bones of every possible thing. And I hate that. And yeah. I may have done it on the vendor side. I don't think I did, but, but I, I everyone very well may have, right? So we want to stop that and starve those things of air, right? Unfollow people on LinkedIn, comment, wait a vendor or things like that, right? And there's some aspect of vendor management. There's some aspect of calling each other out privately, uh, hopefully, right, to, to to kind of overall change the attitude. And it also has to do a lot, I really, really believe, with the language that you use yourself, right? Mm-hmm. So an easy one to fix is that of like, you know, users are the weakest link. And turn that into users are strongest first line of defense. Right. Something like that, right? And when you do that, that tends to get the attention of other executives, right? I mentioned the other day to an ELT meeting, users are a fantastic first line of, of defense. They may not be the best, but they're a fantastic first line. Our people are very valuable to the security program, right? And the VP of HR loved it, right? Just right. loved it. That that helped me align, align with them very quickly, right? Yep. I saw a post on LinkedIn just this week, and I cannot remember for the life of me, I think it was Hoff. Basically said, we even have to reconsider using the word users. Yeah. That sort of puts them in a box and, and treats them as this this abstract entity that's already kind of connoted negatively somewhat. And, you know, what other terms can we use to refer to them? Partners, champions, and, you know, employees at a minimum, right? Yeah. Like in, in neutral terms, if, if not positive terms, but but just to call them users is almost to sort of already have them in a negative box, right? That's entirely accurate. And I'm reminded of a, on the vendor side, we used to differentiate between customers and clients, right? Clients where you have a relationship with clients, customers are a one-time transaction. And it's that same kind of thing. Like the language that you use flows through to everything that you, everything else that you do. Mm-hmm. So certainly a better attitude has quite a bit to do with it. That said, you know, you can have the best attitude in the world and still not have a seat at the table. Right. Let's pause right there and hear a brief word from our sponsor. Hey everyone, it's me, Simone Biles. You might be wondering why you're hearing my voice on a cybersecurity podcast ad. Well, it's because I'm partnering with Axonius. Whether you're a gymnast like me, or an IT or security pro, complexity is inevitable. And I've learned that the key to success is focusing on what you can control. Go check out my video at axonius.com Simone. That's A-X-O-N 
IUS.com slash S-I-M-O-N-E. So you told me that we see those as a group lack confidence. This is one that you brought up before in our conversations. What do you mean by that? How is a lack of confidence as a group? First of all, what does that mean? And second of all, how is that impacting us? Yeah, this is challenging because, like I said, that Learn Helplessness episode resonated with me very, very strongly. And then I had to look and I said, why do we do these things? These things are things like spend hundreds of hours and six months doing vendor evaluations, sending out really pedantic, terrible, terrible RFPs, doing mass amounts of uh, POC or POV or trials or whatever yeah. you want to call it, listen to hours of sales presentations. And I think that the reason we do a lot of that kind of thing, and it impacts learning helplessness as well, is we lack confidence. And we lack confidence to make a decision and to own it to our business. And that comes out in a lot of ways. So the symptoms of lack of confidence end up in doing things like lots of vendor emails because we don't have the confidence to say, I like this vendor, this is why, this is what I proposed, and we're going to do it. We tend to surround ourselves by best practice and, oh, well, we're aligned with NIST, or we talked to Gartner and they're in the magic quadrant, and the sub company did this. And, well, we evaluated eight vendors and did this rubric and did trials and proof of concept for six months, and then we're going to give it to a steering committee to democratize the decision-making process and all of this stuff. And I think that that just hurts us on the whole because it slows us down for making effective decisions. We end up making poor decisions for our organization. We end up having a lot more people than are, is probably necessary. We end up spending a lot more money than is probably necessary. We also demonstrate to our executive teams that we don't deserve that seat at the table because we're not able to act decisively. Or we lack confidence in a certain position or a certain decision that may seem unpopular and we're unwilling to articulate. Uh, right. Let me give you an example of this. The standard question that I think is a very good indication of what type of system you are and whether you've earned a seat at that table, whether you're functioning at an executive level is should you pay the ransom? This may be accurate, this may not be, but about half of organizations pay the ransom. About yeah. somewhere yeah, in something, there. Right? Something like that. I've seen different stats that swing both ways, but I, I would say yeah. the, the stats average out to 50-50. Let's call it that. Yet, I have been in multiple groups and rooms of CISOs where it's 90% plus, absolutely no way we do not pay the ransom. No, no questions asked. I don't negotiate with terrorists. I don't trust the mugger to give me back my wallet. All of these things happen. And I think that that's an indication that we don't have the confidence to stand up and go, maybe you pay the ransom. Right. You might, based on the risk, based on the business, based on everything, you might pay the ransom. And it's almost feels good to take a very strong principled stand. We don't negotiate with terrorists. But right. at the end of the day, maybe you do. If the terrorist has a gun to your kid's head, you're going to pay the ransom, right? right? By the same token, executives look at these things. People who have a seat at the executive table, they look at these things and say, maybe. Right. right? I, would, I don't want to, but maybe. Right. So our lack of confidence to sometimes stake out positions that are maybe not popular with some people and say, hey, that's a tough call and I'm willing to say maybe. That's how a lot of the psychic confidence comes up, comes about. 
Yep. There's, you know, that ties into another um, another model I've had over the years that I've played with, and that is, you know, as you as you make your journey from engineer to architect to department manager to director to VP to CISO, and you go through this journey, one of the things I always tell folks that are early on in that journey, especially the ones coming out of the engineering and architecture camps, the ones who are uh, very much on the tech stack side of the business as opposed to maybe GRC or one of the other roles, uh, I always tell them, you live in a world that is very, very black and white today. And the higher up that food chain you climb, the grayer things get. And this mm-hmm. idea that you're going to be the one table pounding, we're never going to use product name. You know, we're <laughs> never going to pay ransom. We're never going to, you know, the table pounding edicts of, of alwaysness um, just don't fly the higher up you get. And everybody, everybody at that table is sitting there thinking, you know, once upon a time, I stood 1,000% for this one thing no matter what, but I recognize there are pressures and stresses on this greater thing called the business. It's bigger than yes. me, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, I think that, that that ties into that theory that, you know, the higher up you go, the more gray things get and the less black and white things are. And so it's, you know, it's, it's like the old, the old saying, never put an engineer in front of a customer, right? Like, you know, right. <laughs> it's, it's that, same, that same mindset. Black and white has its place, but definitely so does gray. Yeah, very much so. And when you lack confidence you maybe don't have strong philosophies, right? And I think that strong philosophies are important. Strong principles are important, as well as being flexible and understanding how how your lens might be different if you're an engineer or a practitioner versus maybe even a leader versus an executive, right? And I right. think that we can see that across senses, right? And you can see answers in the ransomware one, but also right to others and say, that is a that's a security manager. That's a person gets stuff done, happens, and that's an attitude that I would expect from a manager. Yep. And then you have some that are like, okay, that's a leader. I expect that attitude from a leader, and I expect that answer from a leader. And then you have executives, and the executive lens is is even a little bit different, right? Because a leader might look at it and say, well, I advise the business. And then they make they make the decision, but I, I provide information, and that's someone else's call. An executive who happens to be a security guy or gal says, "I provide information, but I also have a role in in deciding what the answer is for the company." Right. Right. And I think that sometimes that switch is a hundred percent confidence. Right. It is being about there is not a good strategic CISO out there that cannot be an ex- executive. They have the attitude. And it's just a kind of a, a switch that they can flip to say, I'm going to help make this decision as well. And I'm right. comfortable doing so. Right. Right. And and doing it outside of your comfort zone in some cases is kind of where we're getting to with this. Because I, you know, yeah. I, I'm thinking back to my management journey and, you know, the, the shop that I grew up in, the you know, the culture I grew up in as I made my journey from, you know, individual contributor to CISO all at one company, by the way. The jump from manager to senior manager really just kind of meant manager who'd been around for a while and, you know, needed a promotion, check the box. But the jump from senior manager to director was the first time that committees were involved and you had to be vetted and evaluated by other members of other teams in the business. And what that really meant to me was it was the first time that you had to take off your this is what I've always done lens and put on the bigger lens of the business. And that jump to director is that first moment that you're making that change. And as a director in that company, I realized I was spending more time talking to other department directors than I was dealing with my own department. Like Mm -hmm. suddenly there was this shift to I was an integral part of getting the business done. And the business was this collective we of all the other directors and all the other departments. And, And we had to all of us have the confidence to still throw our initial opinion out there. 
but have that flexibility and adaptability of the lens of the business to say, oh, wait, my perspective is very isolated and very narrow versus these larger concerns. And to then also have that confidence to your point to say, you know what? I was wrong. I had a limited perspective looking at the bigger picture. This is the decision that we all agree to. Let's do this. Let's rush forward and let's go. And and that's Absolutely. it's confidence followed by perspective, followed by confidence again. Right. Absolutely. And I think that even with executive CISOs, we will see over the next several years the need for even more confidence because proposed SEC rules require right. cybersecurity expertise on boards of directors. Right. And operating at a board of director level is different than operating at executive CISO level as yep. well. Yep. So even like it never stops, right? Confidence is always going to come back into the mix and being very useful and, and very necessary. That's kind of why I'm trying to start talking about this a little bit, both as a way for me to understand it, but also as a way to kind of help other people and say, how can we change this? And it's also hard because we can talk about it, but the solutions are more ideas. They're, they're not necessarily solutions. I can't teach someone how to be confident necessarily, right? So I have ideas, but there's no silver bullet answer that I know of. Attitude is something we can all discuss and talk about, but at the end of the day, there's an internal switch being thrown, right? And nobody can throw that switch for you. And I think I think confidence ends up to a certain extent being the same thing. And you know, we're we're ignoring there's there's one other phrase we haven't touched on in this conversation, which is imposter syndrome, right? Which ties heavily uh, yeah. into all of this as well. And I think confidence and imposter syndrome are at odds with one another. And I would argue that the vast bulk of CISOs I know, including myself, suffer from imposter syndrome at least sometimes. Oh man. Yeah. Imposter has been a thing. I like to, I'm a pretty confident person by, by nature, but it creeps in at me sometimes too, where I'm like, oh, this is not going to go well. Like I'm going to be found out they, that I don't know what the hell I'm talking about here. Like right. what are what they know? They're going to fire me. And it's like, it creeps in and they're like, what, what was that? Dude, ignore that voice. And thankfully I, I have the ability to, but early in my career, I mean, I was high on knowledge and really low on experience and I got put in front of clients, right? I mean, I, all of a sudden I've got to be the guy like right. from the vendor being the guy telling all these people with dramatically more experience than I have in networking or whatever else, what we're going to do because I was the security guy. And so I kind of had to learn early, early on in my career, like straight out of college. Right. I had to, I had to do it. And so I've been practicing that for 20 some odd years. So now I'm able to do it, but imposter syndrome is is no joke. And I've read quite a bit about imposter syndrome in a large variety of fields in life. The one I saw recently had to do with uh, strength coaching, right? And Mm -hmm. strength coaches tend to be very well educated and there's still that imposter syndrome. And I've come to realize that it happens for every profession all the time to everyone. There are very few people who are 100% confident all the time, no matter what. Sure. But it is also a learned thing, right? You have to train yourself. Yeah, the vendor side, the consulting side. It's funny, a lot of the CISOs who've never been on that side of the fence don't realize there are some incredibly valuable skills that come out of it. Because I've done the vendor thing, I've done the consulting thing. And having, having to walk into the room and be the confident authority to rally the troops and get them focused on the mission and the vision there's a skill set there, and that skill set is most definitely applicable when it comes to the uh, the conversation of, you know, having a seat at the table, right? I had one senior vice president interview me for a CISO role, and he later told the hiring manager, the you know, the person I was going to be reporting to, he said, 
I knew within three minutes this guy had the gravitas I was looking for. Yeah. And the rest of the interview was me just filling time. <laughs> yeah. And uh and you know, and I thought that was very interesting that an SVP from another department, utterly, you know, different department, his his whole thing was do you have the gravitas? That's yeah. it. That was the main thing he was checking for. And I I, yeah. I found that to be a very telling moment in in my interviewing. Yeah. There's a variety of words, right? Confidence, gravitas, bearing, command presence, you know, what have you. But I think that people can sense it amongst other people. Yeah. And immediately get it and and respect it. Right. But again, it is that is absolutely a learned skill and it is primarily a learned trait. I'm reminded my mentor, he has a story about one of his students was just having a hard time. Like had the skills, had the background, had the pedigree, had all the things, but was just not getting interviews for a sister role. And he was able to talk to her and talk her through some of some of these things and realized that it was a fairly small tweak to her language because the first thing on the call, she was like, I don't know if I'm system material. And he's like, well, then you're right. Right. So he changed that. She was able to change that over the course of a couple of weeks, had eight interviews, five job offers, got into a price competition thing with the various people and got her dream job. And it was, she had, she had everything she needed. She just needed a little bit of confidence and change the language a little bit. And that that was enough. And I see that time and time again, I have seen it for 20 some years where people are dramatically better or more able than they give themselves credit to. And that dramatically lowers their trajectory, right? Yeah. So confidence is, I think, a big, big chunk of success. And success as a CISO, I think, requires a seat at that executive table. And that is going to require a decent bit of confidence. You don't find many CEOs who are not confident. Right. And to your point, even with the language, there's a certain amount of fake until you make it too. You may not have all that inner confidence, but boy, you need to be projecting it, right? All of us do it. So the confidence also enables you to say something like, I don't know, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to tell me. Um, because fake confidence that's over the top also is recognizable, right? Yeah. And so there there is that there's that balance of is this guy confident and knows what he's talking about? Or is he just completely narcissistic and arrogant? About right, it? right. Just going to say, so, yes, I know everything every time. All right. Well, listen, this has been a phenomenal conversation. I love everything we've been discussing here. And I, I love that we've kind of done a sort of a positive forward approach, you know, towards uh, some of these issues. What can we do to solve and address not just, hey, what's wrong? So I really appreciate you bringing the positivity. I got one question I ask every guest at the end of the show, which is, what is something you have learned from outside of cybersecurity that has helped you in cybersecurity? Well, one that comes to mind is I read the book Freakonomics a long yeah. time ago, and that really hammered home the idea that people always and forever respond to their incentives. And that has helped me identify things about myself. It's helped me identify things about in my relationships, my wife, my kids, all that, as well as other people that I work with, either on the vendor side or as a CISO, is understanding where people are, what they're incentivized by. Mm-hmm. makes me a better leader, makes me a better father, husband, all of that. And I thought that, that from reading one book, I thought that was a, a whole lot of value for reading one book. Right. That's the, it's the platinum rule, right? Don't treat others as you would like to be treated. Treat them as they would like to be treated. Yeah. I started teaching my kids that, right? Because they would hear, oh, teach other people how you want to be treated. I'm like, nah, nah, 
because that one in particular put me off the rails earlier in my career because I treated people how I wanted to be treated, but right. I like extreme bluntness and transparency and not everyone is down with that. Right. Exactly. That'll, that'll, that'll backfire on you big time. Brent Dieterding, CISO at AFNI. I appreciate you coming on down to the ranch. Thank you listeners. Y'all be good now.